Welcome back, everyone, to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. For this installment, I'm going to be talking about forests in the ancient world. Now, there's a reference in very, very ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform in the Epic of Gilgamesh to a so-called cedar forest. This would have been located in what is now Lebanon, and today there are small patches of what were once great cedar forests in that country. The cedar forest was guarded by a creature named Humbaba, and he is killed in the Epic of Gilgamesh by the hero, Gilgamesh, who has come with his best friend and ally, Enkidu, to the forest to cut down trees so that a new cedar gate can be built for the holy city of Nippur. Gilgamesh cuts the head off of Humbaba, but before he dies, Humbaba curses his friend Enkidu. And not long afterwards, Enkidu does in fact pass away. Cedar wood from Lebanon was later used to construct ships, both merchant ships and warships in Egypt and also by the Phoenicians. Now, in the ancient Mediterranean world, timber had a variety of uses, of course. For the Athenians, it was the source of their military power. The Athenians were a naval power in the 5th and somewhat in the 4th century BC also, and this meant that they needed timber, shipbuilding timber, for their fleets of triremes. Triremes were vessels powered by hundreds of oarsmen, and the best wood to use to make the oars was Macedonian pine. But beyond the practical and strategic needs for timber, we have all the various legends and mythological creatures connected to forests in the ancient world, and this is, of course, far more up our alley here at Ancient Weirdness. For example, in Greek and Roman mythology, you have a type of nymph called a dryad. There are specific kinds of dryads that are bonded to trees called hamadryads. These creatures are seen as female seducers of men who enter the forest. There's also male creatures called satyrs. Ancient Greek satyrs seem to have attributes of both men and horses. The equivalent in Roman mythology was a fawn, which actually has more goat-like features. There's the famous story of a satyr named Marcius, who challenged the god Apollo to a musical contest and lost, and his punishment was to be flayed and his flayed skin was nailed to a tree. There is also an alternative account where he is turned into a wineskin. The satyrs were, in a sense, ruled by a god named Pan, the source of our term panic. Pan was believed to live in Arcadia, a region in southern Greece in the Peloponnese that is associated with many, many legends. Pan is said to have made an appearance at the Battle of Marathon, where the Athenians and their Plataean allies were fighting the Persians. As a matter of fact, there was an apparition of Pan, to the great runner Phidippides, who had run the distance to Sparta to try to get Spartan assistance at Marathon. He was unsuccessful in doing so, but during his run back to Athens before the Battle of Marathon, Pan appeared to him in the wilderness and said, why don't you Athenians pay more attention to me? So a shrine was set up at the Acropolis. According to the philosopher Diogenes, Pan taught shepherds how to masturbate, an essential skill to master if you don't want to get involved with your own sheep. And strangest of all, Pan is the only Greek god who is said to have actually died, at least in the accounts of one ancient author, Plutarch. He claims that an Egyptian sailor named Tamus was sailing towards Italy and heard a divine voice out at sea saying, the great god Pan is dead. And he brought the news to people in the port and caused a lot of consternation there. Nothing is said in Plutarch's story about how Pan died, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the gods and goddesses of the Greeks were supposed to be athanatos, deathless or immortal. And Pausanias, the travel writer in Roman imperial times, 
says that there were lots of shrines of Pan that were still functioning, which doesn't really make sense if Pan had died. Some people think that it was actually the god Tammuz, a Mesopotamian god, who does in fact die in myth and is forced to stay in the underworld, that the voice was actually referring to Tammuz, that god, and not Tammuz, the name of an Egyptian sailor. So this brings us to probably the craziest inhabitants of the forest, although not on a full-time basis. This was the term for women possessed by the spirit of Dionysus, the so-called menads, or insane or raving ones. So the worship of Dionysus was connected to intoxication, the imbibing of alcohol, snake handling, as is attributed to Olympias, the mother of Alexander the Great. But the Menads are a different story. These are women who go completely out of their minds, and they roam maniacally through the countryside, tearing apart animals and eating their flesh raw, and sometimes doing this to people as well. Oddly enough, women who are already insane appear able to fight off the influence of Dionysus. So the dismemberment of animals or people with their bare hands is called sparagmus, and the consumption of their flesh is called homophagia. The most famous examples of the story of the Menads occur in Greek mythology and also in plays that were performed in the classical period. The Bacchae by Euripides tells the story of King Pentheus of Thebes, who is murdered by a group of Menads on Mount Kithaeron after he bans the worship of the god Dionysus, so this is divine vengeance against him. His own mother, Agave, becomes one of the Menads, and she tears off his head in the course of the Sparagmas, and later recognizes the head of her son when the spell is broken. In the course of the play's events, a character reports that the Menads had torn apart calves, heifers, and even bulls, and that there were animal parts scattered all over the ground everywhere they went, and that they couldn't be wounded or killed and when their energy ran out and they finally laid on the ground, snakes came to lick the blood off of their faces. There's also the story of the death of the musician Orpheus at the hands of Menads, although the motives of the Menads are different in various versions of the story. For example, in one, it's because he won't worship Dionysus, but there's also a version where he decides he doesn't want to sleep with women anymore, only men. And the local women are so enraged that they go into a menadic state and tear them apart. And when they wash the blood off of their hands in the river Helicon, it sinks underground. There's also a version where his head, still singing songs, washes downstream, enters the Aegean Sea, and washes up onto the shores of the island of Lesbos, where the head becomes a talking oracle for a period of time. There are a few other scattered references in mythology. The daughters of Minyas and Pretus end up killing their own children while in a menadic state after refusing to honor the god Dionysus, and they are later transformed into bats. There's also some ideas of sexual license going on here as well, because in Euripides' play Eon, the character Zuthus is said to have gotten a menad pregnant, which must have been an interesting experience for him. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, of course, whether or not this Menad phenomenon was actually historical, or was it just the stuff of legends? Well, we do have reports of women going off together into the wilderness, and going into an ecstatic frenzy attributed to Dionysus. Where scholars put the brakes on a little bit is whether or not the Spragmas and Homophagia actually occurred. There is a story that in 354 BC, a group of Menads in the small Greek town of Amphissa passed out in the marketplace from exhaustion after running through the forest for a period of time. At the time, Amphissa was at war, and there were a lot of soldiers stationed there. And the citizen women of Amphissa became very concerned for these menads. 
they were in a vulnerable state and the soldiers might take advantage of them. So they formed a protective cordon around them in the marketplace until they rested up, recovered their senses, and were able to leave the city. There's also an account of some female worshippers of Dionysus being snowed in on Mount Parnassus during a winter festival and that a search party of men had to rescue them and that it was so cold at the time that everyone's clothing was frozen to their bodies by the time they returned. The philosopher Aristoxenus of Tarentum in southern Italy does say that women in two different towns nearby around the year 350 BC went insane. These are our strongest references to something historical that the Menad phenomenon might be based on. Artemis was the goddess of the woodlands, known as Diana, to the Romans. There was a sanctuary dedicated to her on Lake Nemi near Arecchia in central Italy, where her priest was someone who had killed his predecessor in single combat and lived within a sacred grove awaiting the next challenger. And there's also the myth of Actian, who came upon Artemis while she was bathing outside in a forest, and nobody was allowed to see Artemis naked. So she cursed him. She said if he ever spoke another word again in his life, he would be transformed into a stag. Sometime later, he called out to his fellow men and hunting dogs when he heard them in the woods, and sure enough, he was transformed. When he looked into a pool of water and saw the face of a stag staring back at him, he panicked, fled into the woods, but his own dogs pursued and killed him. They could then only be calmed down when a statue in his likeness was fashioned. It's interesting, there was a shrine to Diana inside the city limits of Rome that men would shun because a man had supposedly committed a rape inside the sacred precinct and had been torn apart by dogs thereafter. Now, Central Europe in Roman times had large stretches of what comes to be known as the Hercynian Forest. That name is of uncertain attribution, but it might relate to oak trees, which were very common in that part of Europe. Julius Caesar mentions the Hercynian Forest in his Gallic Wars, says that it would take a traveler nine days to span the distance from one end to the other, east to west. He speaks of animals that seem to fit the description of unicorns. Most scholars have thought that this was actually a reference to reindeer. He also mentions a type of bison called an auroch. They were once very common in Europe, having appeared as far back as the Stone Age in cave paintings. Their horns were particularly prized. Philip V of Macedon, a famous king that eventually was brought down by the Romans, is said to have bagged a particularly large auroch and dedicated its hide to Hercules. Aurochs are now extinct, although it took all up until the 1600s for that to happen. Pliny the Elder says in the Hercynian forest, trees grow so closely together that they're fighting each other for sunlight. And he also describes birds that have feathers that shine in the sun. Caesar makes reference to the Druids, priests who are often connected with trees, particularly oak trees. We're not sure of the etymology of the term Druid, but a likely one is oak knower or oak seer. And they did have connections to oak trees. To call them priests is to oversimplify. They had legal authority, some political authority, and also were supposed to be living repositories of knowledge of things such as medicine and philosophy. All of it memorized because they were forbidden to put anything into writing and had to study for over 20 years. So our information comes from Greek and Roman authors. Most of it seems to derive from the travels of Posidonius, a Stoic philosopher originally from Apame in Syria, although he taught for many years in Rhodes. So we generally call Posidonius of Rhodes. 
He is said to have traveled among the various Celtic and Gallic tribes, both in Gaul as well as Hispania or Spain, and preserves a great deal of information about the Druids, which was used later by authors such as Diodorus, Strabo, and Julius Caesar. Posidonius does describe human sacrifice among the Gauls and finds it barbaric, but he has a lot of very positive things to say about the Druids. We just wish we had his original book that was used by so many later authors. Julius Caesar says that they were exempt from taxes and military service. Some other authors, such as Diodorus and Strabo, state that they had the authority to intervene in and stop battles from occurring. They would do divination from the flight of birds. They would also sacrifice animals and humans, where the victim would be stabbed with a dagger, and they would read signs from the gods and the flow of blood and the thrashing the death throes, or by shooting them with arrows or impaling them. There's also the story of the Colosson, or Wicker Man, where they would burn animals and humans, usually criminals or slaves, in a giant wicker effigy of a man. There was some kind of concept in their ideology of the power of skulls of the dead, and several shrines in the southern part of France today, such as at Glanum, had displays with niches for skulls. There's references to them professing a belief in the reincarnation of souls compared by some to a similar belief among the Greek philosophers called the Pythagoreans. And Pomponius Mela, a geographer from the Roman period, says that they knew the size and shape of the earth and also understood the movements of the stars. Now, as far as forests are concerned, Druids were known to use sacred groves called nemeta, or literally clearings. There's actually a description of one in the epic poem The Pharsalia by the author Lucan. It's a fictionalization of the civil war between Pompey and Caesar, but he describes a nemeton near the town of Massalia, the Greek colony on the south coast of Gaul, which is now Marseille. And the thing about the Pharsalia is it would make a perfect horror movie, at least parts of it. It's full of necromancy and witchcraft and all kinds of frightening events. But his description of the nemeton definitely sets the stage for a horrifying place. He says that it was shunned by animals and birds, and the leaves moved on the trees, even though no wind passed through the branches. The Druids were renowned for their knowledge of plant lore. One sacred plant was mistletoe, which they believed was made from the seminal fluid of one of their gods, called Tauranus. Pliny the Elder gives a description of the methodology that they used to harvest mistletoe. They would do it on the sixth day of the lunar cycle, which was actually the beginning of their month. Wearing a white robe, they would harvest mistletoe using a golden sickle, although most likely it was bronze, and would catch the cut mistletoe in a white robe. Then they would sacrifice two white bulls and then use the harvested mistletoe to create an elixir that could be used to combat infertility or as an antidote to poisons. Now, the Romans later considered mistletoe to be lucky, and that's how we get the idea of hanging mistletoe for people to kiss under at Christmas and so on. Now, the Romans eventually targeted the Druids because they saw them as potential organizers of revolts. We do know of only one Druid by name because he actually visited Rome as an ambassador from his tribe, the Aedui. His name is rendered as Davidiacus or sometimes Davikiacus, and he met the philosopher and statesman Cicero. We really don't know what kind of exact authority he had at home, though, or with any other tribe of the Gauls. There is a report that a tribe called the Carnutes would elect some sort of chief Druid, but this has been questioned. It's said that Augustus, the first Roman emperor, forbade Roman citizens from engaging in any kind of Druidic rites, and then the rites were banned outright by his successor, Tiberius. The island, today known as Anglesey, off the Welsh coast, was known as Mona at this time in history. 
And the Roman historian Tacitus talks about Suetonius Paulus and his amphibious attack to wipe out the Druids headquartered on the island in the year AD 60. When the soldiers first landed on the shore of the island, they were terrified by the sight of a group of men and women in black robes and disheveled hair cursing at them and waving torches maniacally. But Paulus, the commander, rallied their courage and they began to butcher these men and women and wiped out the entire contingent of Druids on the island and claimed that they found altars covered with human entrails that were used in divination. But they had to actually break off the attack and leave the island because of Boudicca's rebellion. So there was actually a second landing that took place in 78, led by Agricola. And this resulted in the final Roman conquest of the island. During the intervening period between those two landings, there was a revolt led by a man named Civilis of the tribe of the Batavians against the Romans in AD 69. Druids are said to have supported this rebellion. There were prophecies that came from a woman named Veleda of the Bructeri tribe, who supposedly lived in a tower on what is now the Lipper River in Germany, that Rome had been fated to fall. The Temple of Capitoline Jupiter had just burned due to civil war that resulted in fighting in the streets of Rome itself. And there were various other wars and attacks by barbarian tribes all across Europe against Roman forces. However, none of them succeeded. Civilis was defeated. Veleda was captured and her life spared, but we don't know anything about the fate of the Druids. Roman armies sometimes came to grief in forests. They seemed to have some kind of deep-seated fear of them. The most famous example was the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, where the Germanic leader Arminius, who had been actually trained in Roman tactics while serving as an auxiliary in the Roman army, wiped out several legions led by the commander Varus. Varus committed suicide when he realized the battle was lost, and it said that several captives were sacrificed to Germanic gods. Years later, the remains were found by another Roman army led by Germanicus and were finally given a decent burial. Now, moving into the Middle Ages, there are many stories of Christian saints and missionaries cutting down sacred trees and groves in their efforts to stamp out paganism. St. Boniface is said to have ordered a tree called Donar's Oak, or sometimes called Thor's Oak, to be cut down, which was probably near modern Geismar in Germany. He made a small notch in the tree, and suddenly a flash of light and power from above destroyed the tree in its entirety, according to the Christian version. Pagan views of the event were, of course, suppressed. Boniface was an ally of Charlemagne, King of the Franks. During his campaigns against the Saxons, Charlemagne himself is said to have ordered a sacred tree called Irmansol to be cut down. It's possible, though, that the Irmansol was actually not a tree, but a pillar made out of wood or stone. It was actually northern Europe and the Baltic states where paganism held out the longest. And the tribe that held on to paganism the longest was the Lithuanians. One of the main gods of their pantheon was Perkunash, associated with lightning and thunder, but also with, you guessed it, oak trees and sacred groves. And in 1341, two Franciscan friars, Ulrich and Martin, were martyred in a sacred grove in Lithuania. Their deaths were ordered by Gediminas, Grand Duke of Lithuania, in retaliation for their preaching against Perkunash and the other traditional gods. Funny thing is, is that Gediminas at the time was actually dangling an offer of his own baptism to the Pope to try to avoid further attacks by Catholic rulers on his kingdom. 
The Lithuanians did not formally convert to Christianity until 1387, incredibly late in the game. To put that into perspective, the last pagans of Europe carried firearms. Thanks, everyone, and I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. <laughs>